Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Donal Hassett, the author of Mobilizing Memory, The Great War and the Language of Politics in Colonial Algeria, 1918 to 1939. And the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Hi there, Donal. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks a million for having me on. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Before I ask you about anything else, Donal, um, can you tell us a little bit about where you are and how you're doing during this difficult <laughs> and strange time of global pandemic? So I'm in uh, Cork in Ireland. Um, I'm currently panicking about trying to set up all my videos and prepare for this coming year. But I must say I have been lucky in that when the sun was out this summer, which happens occasionally in Ireland, I got to visit all of the West Coast, and that was really nice. So I'm trying to keep positive. Yeah, well, I wish you luck with the the coming school year. I'm certainly dealing with some similar stuff myself. I think we're all we're all changing a lot in terms of how we do things. Donald, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background? What brought you to the study of French Empire and Algeria in particular, and and the subject of this book? Um, definitely. So as you can probably tell from my accent and my name, I, I'm from Ireland um, and I did my PhD in the European University Institute in Florence, which is a kind of a great international institution mm. where I got to mix with people who are doing all different types of, of history and lots of different colonial historians. And then I was lucky enough to get a, a job in, in Bristol in England and then uh, eventually a job back in, in Ireland in Cork. So I'm a lecturer in the French department there, and I, I focus mainly on teaching colonial history and post-colonial France. So I suppose my interest in France really began when I was 12. My uh, home village was twinned with a village in Brittany, and I got to travel there on a trip subsidised by the European Union. Right. Huh. And I had never, never really been abroad before, so I was kind of fascinated by the culture and the history, the language and the food. Then as I, I began to study Irish history in more depth at school, I became increasingly interested how the questions of imperialism and anti-colonialism that featured so heavily in the contested narratives of the past and present in my own country here in Ireland played out in the context of the French Empire and particularly in Algeria because there's a lot of parallels. I mean, there are many differences, but there are a lot of striking parallels between the history of Ireland and Algeria. So, Donald, I have so many questions about the book, you know, starting with the kind of way you set up the project and uh, how you define its parameters. But before we get into the sort of substance of the arguments and interventions that you're making, I'm just going to follow the physical copy of the book that I have in mm-hmm. front of me here and that people will see an image of on the blog post for the, the podcast. So, yeah, let's start with the cover. So I was I was really lucky to, to get the cover of my choice, which I'm, I'm told doesn't often happen. I located this uh, image, which is, comes from a uh, poster that was published in 1918 to solicit uh, donations to the National Bond um, in Algeria. Uh, so we, we can see it's a portrayal of a, a soldier, an Algerian soldier, a tirailleur, leaving his wife and his child. Um, and what's actually cut off in the in the picture is that the child is dragging a little um, cannon. Oh. It's quite interesting because it really reproduces the kind of cultural mobilization that we see in war posters in, in European contexts and blends it with a kind of very Orientalist view of Algeria. We can see in the background kind of exoticized vision of the market. So I, I really was hoping I would get this poster on the cover. So I was delighted when the publisher agreed. Your note on ter- terminology really struck me where you talk about your decision, you know, the various kinds of options available to you to use the word Algerian, to use European, to use French, you know, all of these options. And you settle on um, indigenous and European as your terms. Could you say a little bit about about what that terrain is mm. and how contested it is? I don't know if it's possible to say a little bit about that. So, so I'll start by saying that it's actually probably a decision I wouldn't make today. Hmm. I think I would now tend to embrace just a terminology that is Algerian versus European because 
this kind of reproduction of the language of the colonial um, officials that, that I'm kind of contending with here. My argument that I make here in the notes on terminology that the term indigenous is distinct from antigen, mm. I think does hold true. Antigen would be more closely related to native uh, in English. But I still think there is a little slippage in language there between the two categories. So I, I actually now, uh, in my work, currently use the term Algerian instead of indigenous. Hmm. There is quite a lot of complex kind of overlaps between the terminology deployed by different movements uh, in the period. So for the sake of clarity, I thought I would go with indigenous, meaning, you know, Algerians, generally Muslim Algerians, and then Europeans applying to, to the settler origin population. Uh, but I do think, you know, I go forward and backwards on this, as I think many of us do in the field. So, Donald, the book starts and ends. It's really sort of framed in a way by the centenary of the beginning of the First World War in 2014. And so I guess I have kind of a broad question for you about how much you see your work as a kind of conversation between more recent or contemporary concerns in Algeria and France. Yeah. And how much this project was kind of inspired by that or is informed by mm -hmm. that. So I'm going to answer your question by talking about a completely different territory, which is which is Ireland. Sure. The origins of this this project, you know, lay far back in the midst of when I was actually um, in secondary school, and I, I'm I'm a child of the peace process and ex extent that I I was you know um, grew up largely after the the conflict ended in, in Northern Ireland, and I was part of a generation that saw this huge shift in, in narratives around the First World War. Mm. Uh, because for, for a long time in Ireland, the First World War was um, not really spoken about in the South. It was overshadowed by the independence struggle. And then in the North, it was kind of closely bound up with a Protestant identity and um, that, that didn't really address the participation of Catholics. So in the advent of the peace agreement, there was this surge in interest in the Great War as a kind of shared historical moment uh, where Irish men uh, of different political and religious traditions had fought side by side. And this was translated into, into a whole new curriculum at school. And I was actually the first year that, that took this new curriculum of, of history in secondary school that had this huge emphasis on the First World War. So from a very young age, I was kind of conscious of how closely tied uh, our narratives of history, and especially our narratives of the First World War, are to the contemporary political moment. Mm. The, the history of the First World War in Ireland is still deeply connected to the broader political project of reconciliation uh, on the island. And I just thought it was really interesting to see how the First World War was, was largely absent, uh, particularly in that period, from the same types of discussions that, that were happening uh, about France and Algeria. And then uh, in the period of the centenary in Algeria, you saw a, a lot of tension arising, tension that I recognised from my own country. Is the First World War in Algeria a, a story of colonial oppression of people forced to fight an imperial army and denied rights? Is it a story of a kind of a shared history in which Algerians came to the defence of France uh, in the same way they would subsequently come to defend their own sovereignty against France during the War of Independence? All of these kind of competing narratives really came to a head uh, in 2014 when uh, the Algerian government under former President Bouteflika decided to participate in the centenary um, parade on the Champs-Élysées uh, on the 14th of July. And I just thought it was so fascinating the way that that decision could remain so contested uh, today. And, and that tells us that, that the types of things I'm talking about happening in the years directly after the war continue to resonate and that, that the First World War continues to be mobilised politically by actors on both sides of the Mediterranean. You talk about the book in the introduction uh, as a project that's about bridging the gap. I think that's the phrase that you use mm -hmm. between colonial history and the history of the Great War. So could you talk about the nature of those, I know, massive historiographies and how you're kind of doing something here in this book that that is connecting them in a, in a distinct and, and maybe a new way? So, so we have seen in, in recent years um, a lot of really fascinating, excellent work that has come out that has been about the participation uh, and contribution of colonial troops uh, and colonial workers to war, to war efforts um, in France. So I'm thinking of the work of, of Rick Fogarty, but also um, 
as of the First World War is a colonial global war in general. So work on India's contribution to the war, work on um, the war in Africa itself, the African fronts of the war. And we saw that resonate um, to a certain extent during the centenary. So we did see a lot of historiographical uh, advances around colonial involvement in the war, but also an acknowledgement of this in public discourse, uh, particularly in, in France and the UK. But what I have always felt is, has been a bit lacking has been the next step. Um, so we, we have a really rich uh, literature about the legacies of the First World War in, in European societies. Uh, we have a really rich literature, a growing literature about women in the First World War, mm-hmm. um, about labour. Mm-hmm. Um, but those kind of literatures are, are still quite lacking uh, when it comes uh, to the colonial context. So in this book in particular, I wanted to look at the legacies uh, how the First World War shaped politics in a colonial society uh, in the interwar period. Yeah, I mean, it is really a, a book about about the kind of aftermath of the war and those interwar years. So I want to just go back to the front cover again and, mm. and um, ask about the title of the book, Mobilization of Memory. How do you see the the title doing some of the work of what you're you're talking about in this book? So I'm always a big fan of alliteration. So that was part of the, the attraction. Uh, but... <laughs> What I, what I wanted to capture in the title and throughout the book is this idea that memory can be uh, mobilized, as in that political actors have the agency uh, to choose when to evoke the Great War and to put it to work in favor of whatever their, their claims are, their social, their economic, their cultural claims. But, and this is the key point in the book, that decision to evoke the Great War can come at a cost. It can have unforeseen um, consequences because the language of the Great War is bound up in broader political concepts, whether they are quality or the equality of the trenches, whether they are the protection of French sovereignty, whether they are the defense of kind of conservative cultural or social values. I thought it was quite interesting to see how quite often political actors in, in and this is true in European societies as well, political actors in Algeria can choose to evoke the war uh, to advance their cause and then find that that choice has um, consequences that that actually damage their campaign. Mm-hmm. And I explore that, I think, in, in almost every chapter in the book. I guess the other question I wanted to ask about in, sort of related to, to the framing of the book uh, in these ways, Donal, is what would you want to draw someone's attention to in terms of what it means to say interwar or 1918 to 1939 in the Algerian context, like not to make the mistake of thinking that interwar means the same thing in Algeria as it does maybe in France, metropolitan France, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something I, I've actually been been reflecting on more of late as well as how even those categories that, that we use um, carry with them, you know, a, a kind of a Eurocentric uh, viewpoint Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've been grappling with is actually and something I didn't really address in the book is that we have a, a quite a narrow concept of, of what veterancy of the war is. And of course, I'm now thinking that, you know, people who resisted the war in, in Algeria, you know, people who participated, there, there's a revolt in 1916 um, in, in the Ores against uh, the draft and against the war. And there are people who, um, you know, are executed as part of that, but there are also people who survived that and, and um, continue their lives afterwards. I mean, should they also be considered as veterans of the war, veterans of the First World War? And these are big questions that I think that, that, that there's something I, I plan to grapple with in the future. I think it's important that when we, when we talk about interwar period, and this is one of the things I'm interested in doing in the book, is to see what of what characteristics of the interwar period that we identify in, in metropolitan France or across Europe do pertain uh, are relevant in Algeria and which aren't. For example, this surge of paramilitarism that we see in, in 1919, 1920, 1921, how does that play out in Algeria? Is that relevant? The rise of mass politics, the type of popular front-style governments we see in the 1930s, are they relevant in Algeria? How are they different? How does the limited um, expression of democratic rights in a colonial society shape or hamper the development of similar types of mass politics? So, in a way that the choice of that period is a deliberate comparison of a colonial society with the kind of the more standard narratives of interwar we have for Europe and for France. 
And, you know, I'm thinking right now in relationship to this sort of broader question of the moments in the book, you know, when you talk about the interaction that those who come from Algeria will have with metropolitan French soldiers uh, and workers in the case of those who, who come to labor, but also their interaction for colonial soldiers, you know, their interaction with colonial soldiers from other empires. In bringing those historiographies of the Great War and uh, colonial history, massive fields, right, mm-hmm. that are often fields in which people are doing transnational work, how do you think about the specificity of the French empire in relationship to, let's say, even just to pick one, one small example, the mm. British Empire. So I think what's quite interesting about the historiography of, of the French Empire and the First World War is that it is so focused on the West Africa, on French West Africa, on the Tirailleurs mm. Sénégalais, you know, which are a really important and large contingent of, of troops, but also have this kind of cultural resonance through their uh, kind of representation in both at the time, but then subsequent, you know, problematic um, legacies yeah. such as, you know, the Brennania kind of mm-hmm. Yabon um, representation of the Senegalese soldier is such a symbol of kind of culture, uh, colonial culture in France. Uh, the extent that that has actually kind of sidelined the, the very large contingents that came from North Africa. So I think that's one element of the historiography. And then the other part um, that I think is quite interesting to note about the French Empire is, of course, this key distinction, which I talk about in, in chapter one, between French practices of colonial recruitment and those um, implemented in other colonial empires. Because, of course, France is, is really kind of unique in the huge numbers of um, colonial soldiers uh, and deploys them in the metropole, so within the borders of France, and to the extent that it uses conscription, formal conscription. Uh, so the fact that these soldiers have fought in France and the fact that many of them, in the case of the Algerians, about half of them have been conscripted, gives them a kind of a much stronger claim post-war to some form of political rights uh, or even citizenship. So that's quite an important distinction um, with, with, for example, the British Empire or the German or Italian empires. Can we also talk about the book's emphasis on political language and, you know, the phrase that you use, the the language of politics? And I guess that's sort of a methodological query for me um, to you about, Mm -hmm. you know, your orientation in this book and the way that you're reading. I mean, we'll talk more about sources, but yeah. Do you want to say anything about, about that phrasing and what it means, how it speaks to your kind of method or approach here? So I, I suppose I'm I'm kind of an odd historian in that I've spent almost all of my both my time studying and my professional career in language departments. Um, mm. So I've always had this this interest in kind of the malleability of language and what rhetoric means in political terms. I was quite interested to see how not so much about the First World War is kind of a social event that had direct social consequences um, in a kind of an older. Um, social history approach, but rather to look at the way it shaped the language used by political actors and how then that very fluidity of language, the meaning of language changing over time and beyond the control of those who are deploying it, really shaped the the type of political action we see in interwar uh, Algeria. Because one of the um, the methodological inspirations for this was, of course, Bakhtin's theory mm. about kind of way language reproduces power but also is a site of struggle uh, and that it is shot through with with the intentions not just of its the person producing the language but of the ways the language has been used before Uh, so evoking the great war is a deliberate um, reference to previous uses of the great war but in doing so it also carries a certain baggage with it you make the point uh in your introduction donald that you know, much of the existing work on the colonial impact of the First World War, not just in the French context, you know, there's been this emphasis on the anti-colonial nationalism that kind of emerges in part as the result of participation, particularly by colonial, you know, troops in the in the, mm-hmm. in the First World War. And that this isn't just an Algerian phenomenon, but this is something that happens throughout the empire in various ways. And, I mean, as, as I was reading about this, I was thinking, I'm so guilty of that of doing that when I teach, I'm so guilty of saying, well, there's the war <laughs> and then watch nationalism grow. <laughs> like in response. And so your project, one of the contributions, not just to me, but to everyone is to 
correct or temper that emphasis on anti-colonial nationalism and to really explore the other possibilities and futures for the colonial um, and imperial relationship. This idea of a, you know, I'm quoting you here, a reformed political order within the imperial framework. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking before we started recording about um, a recent interview I did with Annette-Joseph-Gabriel uh, about her work at, on, on Black women um, and empire. And I, I just feel like I'm reading a lot lately about the, the exploring the possibilities for petitioning, making claims against mm-hmm. imperial authority, reimagining that aren't all focused on a certain definition of independence on a certain type of nationalism. So could you talk about how the book makes a kind of contribution to that, to that broader conversation? So I think I was, of course, inspired by, by a lot of the excellent work that has been done in the field of colonial history around this. So, you know, obviously Fred Cooper and Gary mm-hmm. Wilder's work. Um, but I, I also thought that, you know, my, my instinct, I think many of us work in colonial history, our instinct is towards the kind of the anti-colonial revolutionary. They're the figures that kind of, you know, Masali Hajj, who is the leader of the Algerian nationalist uh, movement, is someone I'm deeply obsessed with. Mm-hmm. I'm still running my campaign for him and his uh, <laughs> wife, radical Emily Biscon, to get their Netflix series. But, you know, I thought it would be more interesting for me to, to look at these types of movements that often don't get the attention that, that I feel they merit. And there's a tendency in... In colonial history in general to be teleological to so to look towards the anti-colonial nationalist figures and this is particularly acute in the case of Algeria where the kind of political movement of nationalism originates in the metropole uh, and not in the colony itself uh, so by focusing on nationalism we're losing a lot of the history actually of the interwar period you know it's, it's important to, to bring together the type of work that, that I'm doing and the type of work that that uh other scholars are doing that are exploring these alternative futures with the type of work that, that people like Arthur Asaraf have done, uh, which is about exploring uh, alternative forms of nationalism or alternative origins of nationalism. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Arthur mm-hmm. has been looking at, at how people in North Africa drew inspiration from, received news from, understood the histories of other parts of um, the colonial world, other parts of the Arab world, other parts of the Muslim world, other parts of Africa. Uh, and and integrated that into their kind of instinctive anti-colonial understanding of, of politics. So for me, it's not just about creating or understanding a history about the alternative futures um, that weren't nationalism, but rather understanding kind of a broad spectrum of, of histories of alternative futures that weren't necessarily the nationalism that, that we ended up with, but certainly contributed to shaping that nationalism. The project, Donald, you know, necessarily pulls you into this longer term and wider conversation, another one, (laughs) about the colonial archive. Um, And just kind of coming back to this question about the language of politics, I guess this is the the grain question. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about the work that you're doing here, the sources that you're working with, how you're reading them? Um, You know, how does it play out in terms of, how does the, the grain question play out in terms of the the sources that you're using in the book, press, archives in Algeria and France. I had a fantastic opportunity to visit all kinds of, of archives um, in the course of this project in, in France and, and in Algeria. And while the, the archival process was, was challenging at times, uh, I think it really lent a lot to my understanding of the, of the kind of work I was trying to do. Because when you're working with language, when you're closely examining language, you know, the kind of the way it's controlled um, even contemporary society through the archival process should shape and should inform uh, your approach to analysing um, the, the primary sources. So I'm mainly focused um, on newspaper sources. Uh, there was a, a quite a, a rich um, vein of press that would be quite familiar to people of Algeria uh, who, who study Algeria, but also then some, some sort of um, less well-known um, press archives. So, for example, the, the Veterans Association's um, press archives, which I imagine nobody else had really exploited before. And then my favourite sources uh, were sources I, I found in um, the archives in Vincennes, the military archives, mm. which were these uh, uh, pension petitions. Uh, and um, many of you uh, are familiar, including yourself, with, with the archives in Vincennes. And um, so they 
they also got strict, so they would only permit me to see five personal dossiers a day. Mm -hmm. So it required me going out for 20 minutes in the archive every day for 40 days in a row to get through all of these petitions. Uh, But it was very much a labour of love because it was one of the few opportunities I've had in, in, in my career of researching this period of Algerian history get some sort of window into um, the lives of people who exist outside the sphere of high politics mm-hmm. and who exist outside the sphere of kind of, um, you know, writing political journals uh, in French. You know, that's a very limited proportion of, of Algerian society, whereas the kind of sources I exploit, particularly in, in, in the final chapter, involve, you know, widows who have commissioned a public writer to write a letter to the governor pleading their cause and that's a kind of source that I think we are quite often lacking in colonial history so it was really a pleasure to get to to exploit those to to try and understand what the role of this public writer was how he was mediating Mm -hmm. the demands of the the claims holder and how the claims holder themselves the widow the orphan the disabled veteran how they were preempting what the colonial authorities expected of them in an effort to try and secure, you know, a better chance of securing whatever pension or petition um, they were presenting to the authorities. So in a way, I got, I was lucky in that I got to use all different types of sources that, that helped prepare me and train me as a historian in, you know, understanding the different dynamics that play within the colonial archive. So Donald, that first chapter, I mean, it's, it's not that it's long, but it covers a tremendous amount of ground. Yes. Yeah. Maybe the way to, to get you to talk about that chapter without us taking up all the time that we have is to just sort of ask about, yeah, what the sort of key issues are that um, the First World War, yeah, what kind of watershed the First World War is in relationship to that broader history of colonial Algeria and mm-hmm. specifically with respect to this idea of, you know, service and military service. So I think, you know, as you say in the first chapter, I, I try to cover quite a lot of ground and, and settle the settle um, set the context of the book and the broader historiographies of, of First World War uh, and of Algeria. Uh, but I think the key thing to take away from it in, in terms of trying to understand the significance of the First World War in the history of colonial Algeria is the transformative effect of the war, both on the, the social and the political life of the colony. So on the, on the first hand, you know, when we talk about the home front, we tend to talk about metropolitan France, but of course there is an Algerian home front. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people uh, who are mobilised um, within Algeria, within the military forces in Algeria. There is um, lots of resistance within Algeria to recruitment. There is a, a full-scale revolt in 1916 uh, that has to be crushed and is crushed very brutally by the French. Mm-hmm. There is also the phenomenon of European men leaving to serve the front and their wives running the farm with the help of indigenous Algerian men. Uh, So there's a whole complex of social relationships that emerge during the war in Algeria that do have a fundamental role in in changing Algerian society. The war also accelerates processes of urbanisation and industrialisation, which means that in the interwar period uh, and going forward, you have a larger population of working class, both Europeans and particularly Algerians. It accelerates migration processes, so many of the Algerians who have travelled over to fight in the war, to work in the war, build relationships with their French colleagues. Um, they build, in some cases, relationships with French women, uh, or they build a kind of a, a network that will facilitate them returning after the war. Mm-hmm. So after the war, you have this big acceleration uh, of, of migration. And then in, in terms of politics, you have this idea emerging from the war uh, across all of the belligerent territories, whether they're colonies or metropoles, that the war has given rights. Uh, so it establishes this form of obligation between the state and those who have served it. Those who have served the state have done their obligation towards the state by giving their lives or offering up their lives in defence of the state. And now it is the time for the state to give them just compensation for their service. In the context of Algeria, there are huge debates about what that means. What does that look like? Does just compensation for Algerians mean citizenship? Does it mean enhanced political rights? And how can that be reconciled with just compensation for the Europeans who have fought in the war? Mm -hmm. If we give citizenship rights to Algerians, does that dispossess European settlers? 
So the state is faced with this very complicated task of trying to balance this, what we might call the moral economy of mm. post-war society. In the second chapter, Donal, you're really focused on, you know, what you refer to as the post-war colonial order and this range of political reform efforts in interwar Algeria. And, and the thing that really strikes me or struck me about this chapter is how you are kind of moving through and trying to negotiate the fact that Algerian society is really complicated and <laughs> there are all of these political and ideological divides. There are racial and ethnic divides. There, you know, um, we started with a conversation about terminology. So rather than covering all the ground that that chapter does, I I am kind of interested in how this chapter for me, especially sort of stood out as a place where you're really having to kind of explore this, this issue of political reform claims and demands, but then try to balance or keep, keep aware of the fact that those different constituencies sometimes have common ground, sometimes don't, and Mm. how you're kind of managing that in this chapter and and elsewhere in the book. What was interesting it as I approached this really complex um, kind of question of, of post-colonial reform, and I can assure you in the thesis, the chapter was very unwieldy and extremely long. So this was quite <laughs> challenging to try and cut down and condense into, into a book chapter. But, but the one thread that I think um, runs through all of it and, uh, and is common to, to all of the kind of political action around colonial reform that we see in the period is this idea that the Great War, service in the Great War, legitimizes a certain political vision. Uh, so you have political um, movements that are deeply, deeply, viscerally opposed to each other, competing on the ground of the First World War to say, my vision of Algeria's future, you know, if my vision is limited citizenship rights given to uh, an elite of Algerians with a view to extending that out towards the whole population, then I would say, look at how the Algerians fought in the First World War. They weren't even citizens, but they gave their lives to defend France. If I'm a European who is resistant to colonial reform, I will say, well, look at how the Europeans spilt their blood uh, for France to defend France. France cannot turn its back now on the Europeans by granting rights to the Algerian, indigenous Algerians. So you have this sense that they understand the Great War is a source of legitimacy. And in order to co-opt it effectively, what they seek to do is to maximise their own sacrifices and minimize those of their opponents. Mm. And so you have the, the Europeans in the immediate aftermath of the war pouring scorn on the number of Algerians who participate in the war. Obviously, the European population is far smaller than the Algerian, uh, indigenous Algerian population. So they point to the percentages and they say so many more of us went as a percentage of our total population. The Algerians, of course, return with, with the hard numbers and they say, well, actually, more of us in total numbers went than the Europeans. So we have a greater claim. Mm -hmm. By the time then you get to the 1930s, you have the rise of mass politics in the colony and you have, you know, a diversification of of references. So the First World War is is less recent, it's less dominant. But you do have three new groups that seek to mobilise the First World War uh, in defence of their vision of an alternative structure of Algerian society. So you have the, the extreme right movements, which I discuss in detail in, in chapter four. You had the nationalist movement who in the 19, 1930s are making big inroads in Algeria and they are evoking the First World War as a symbol of France's betrayal. The fact that we can't trust France's promises. France promised us that if we went and fought and defended uh, the empire, then we would get more rights. And look what happened. We got no more rights. And then finally, you have the veterans movements themselves are a real innovation of the the late 1920s, early 1930s. You have Algerian veterans themselves saying, I fought in the war. I deserve the right uh, to have extended uh, some form of citizenship, to have pension rights, to be able to vote. Uh, I gave part of my life and lost some of my comrades in arms to defend the empire. I should have the right to shape its future. So we have quite an interesting contested use of the First World War language. And the only group really that challenges the logic of the First World War language is, of course, the nationalists, because for everybody else, evoking this language of loyalty to France is about changing the empire from within. Whereas for the nationalists, referring to the Great War is not about loyalty to France, but rather about betrayal. I want to just go back to something we talked about earlier about, you know, thinking about the interwar 
in another context, let's say metropolitan France, and thinking about what interwar means in the Algerian context, and talk for a second about um, the third chapter where you are focusing on the question of labor and the kind of politics of socialists and trade unionists. I guess the question is, how is this a labor history? And how, how is that chapter in particular, but other places in, in the book making a kind of contribution to how we understand that interwar period of a certain type of labor, labor activism and labor politics mm. of strikes, trade union activism, uh, eventually, you know, the popular front, like th- that, that this is also an Algerian story. And how do you see your contribution to that broader history of those things? So I suppose that um, one of one of the issues which you know runs through kind of representations of of Algeria in the interwar period is again the focus uh, on the metropole, and quite often kind of Algerians crop up uh, in the labour history of metropolitan France. Um, they're obviously very important uh, to the expansion of the labour movement in in the industrialised areas that that are zones for migrations of Paris or Lyon or Marseille, uh, but the extent to which those kind of issues resonate back home in Algeria has been less explored. So I think that the book does add an extra chapter to, to that uh, idea of the labour history of the interwar period, particularly uh, how the First World War shapes labour activism in the immediate aftermath of the 1920s. And I was quite interested in, in looking at how uh, a movement like the labour movement, which is European dominated uh, in Algeria, it's, it's based largely in the cities, where the population is is majority European, and like most civil organisations in in colonial context, um, you know, it's dominated. Its leadership is dominated by European figures. But how they grappled with the difficulty of uh, importing a language or applying a language of equality that is drawn not just from socialism but from the experience of the First World War. So this idea that we were all together in the trenches. We all showed our solidarity for the war together by making sacrifices in the factories, by giving our our money to the state, by giving our lives to the state. How that can be applied then in the context of a colonial society where the commitment to equality is limited by a commitment to European supremacy. And that is the essential conundrum that faces organisations like socialist organisations, but also, as we'll see in a later chapter, the veterans associations. Uh, How do you reconcile this metropolitan rhetoric or discourse of equality with the lived reality uh, of a colonial uh, context in which um, your movement is, whether openly or not, committed to the maintenance of a hierarchy between Algerian uh, and European settler? And I think what what is quite interesting is the extent to which the European activists throughout this book and throughout this period apply this language of equality and think that they will be able to control how it is applied. So they will apply it to specific demands. They will say, you know, equal wages with France. We want to have the eight-hour week applied or the eight-hour day applied here in, in Algeria just as it is applied in France. So these are rhetorics of equality. And thinking then afterwards that they can limit that equality to say, we demand equality in the case of workers' rights, but not in the case of civil rights for Algerians. And of course, Algerians themselves will contest that. Indigenous Algerians would say, well, why is equality being extended in this part of um, society, but not when it comes to our rights as Algerians? And the other interesting element I sought to explore in this chapter was how the phenomenon that we see in Europe of extra um, extra parliamentary violence, paramilitary violence uh, in the 1919, 1920, 1921 period, how that plays out in Algeria. There's a very striking quote um, from one of these paramilitary organizations, the League Civique, um, that asserts that the the danger faced by Algeria uh, in this period, 1919, 1920 of of, um, revolutionary strikes is more acute uh, than that faced in 1914, because the internal enemy, the Algerian, is more dangerous than the Bush, than the German. Uh, so we have the, the specificity of the colonial context shaping um, this, this expression of what is normally thought of as a European or metropolitan phenomenon. That's really interesting. I guess I want to come back to this question of the specificity of Algeria, you know, when you're talking in chapter four about communal contributions and racial hierarchies and extreme right movements, and then in chapter five about veteran activists, 
we already talked a little bit about, you know, the emphasis in uh, histories of the First World War that do explore the kind of colonial soldier and race and that they focus on French West Africa. So in those chapters, what would you want us to keep in mind in terms of what makes Algerians, indigenous Algerians, distinct relative to, say, you know, French West Africans? Mm-hmm. And what makes Algeria and its status, not just as a place that has a, a sizable settler population, but, you know, that has this unique status that I always have such trouble explaining to my students. Like it is, and it isn't, you know, like this sort of, yeah. it is, but it, you know, we don't think, I don't think it should have been, you know, <laughs> so I'm always trying yeah. to explain that it's France, but that was, you know, so do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I do. <laughs> so I, I think in terms of, um, particularly in, in terms of chapter four, that's a very specific Algerian history, um, which is not really resonant with, with what is happening elsewhere in the French Empire, uh, because Algeria is home to, you know, a huge settler population. Uh, and it's also home to a huge extreme right movement uh, in the interwar period, something that is almost always um, left out of histor- histories of the extreme right uh, in France or in Europe in this period, that Algeria is really kind of the stronghold of um, French uh, far-right parties such as the Parti Social Francais or the Parti Populaire Francais in the 1930s. Part of um, the story I tell here is, is how the Algerian context um, really complicates their efforts to just apply directly metropolitan discourses uh, around the First World War. So we know that in, in, in France, particularly for a movement like the Parti Social Francais, which was the Croix de Feu, the First World War is their main reference point. Their whole movement is constructed around this mystique of the First World War. In Algeria, that proves really problematic for them because the Algerian Jewish community is larger proportionately than, than its equivalent in France. It's more um, politically powerful uh, and it is its contribution to the First World War is more noted. The Algerian Jewish community fights against anti-Semitism in the 1930s and the 1920s by specifically and repeatedly citing its contribution to the First World War. The result of that, I argue in the book, is that unlike in metropolitan France, movements um, of the extreme right in Algeria are actually quiet about the First World War when it comes to talking to their own members, talking to the European community because of this Jewish claim on, on Algeria's memory of, of the First World War. And that's quite striking because it's very, very different um, from the scenario uh, in metropolitan France. In, in, in Algeria, these movements must adapt uh, to the local circumstances. And what they choose to celebrate is less the soldier uh, of the First World War and more the hero of the conquest of Algeria. And um, not just the soldier, but also, of course, the farmer, the colon, who conquered um, Algeria with his plough. What is also then striking, and again, an often overlooked part of that history, is the fact that that these movements actively seek, and in some cases, succeed in recruiting Muslims and or building alliances with Muslims. And this is because the movements are able to draw on this memory of the First World War, in in part, to mobilise conservative Muslims against communism, against the popular front, against the left, uh, with a promise that and the old kind of camaraderie of the First World War trenches can be recreated in a new political order that respects Muslims' traditions, that offers them some form of political rights, but does not necessarily assimilate them uh, into the French Empire. And what about the Veterans Associations, Donald? The history of the Veterans Associations was, was something that I got kind of obsessed with um, in the course of this project. I thought it was it was so interesting to see how a movement, again, sought to directly reproduce metropolitan French or even classically European methods of claims making. Uh, so this idea that is central to, to veterans movements um, across Europe and especially in France, the idea of the primacy of the veteran, the veteran should be the first um, in society, first among equals, the first to receive um, social care, the first to receive pensions, the first to have a say in political terms. Uh, and how they reconcile that with the primacy of the European in, in the Algerian colonial order. So how can a movement that includes um, indigenous Algerian veterans reconcile those two deliberately, or th- those two quite clearly contradictory goals? Uh, and in the beginning of the, the movement I studied, the Amical uh, de Mutulé 
which is the most important um, movement in the interwar period. The European leadership are very keen just to pay some lip service. Uh, so they will wheel out the Algerian members every so often. Um, they will say, look, you are abandoning these simple Algerian soldiers just like you're abandoning our European soldiers and all of us together are demanding equality of treatment with our equivalents in the metropole. As politics evolves in Algeria through the interwar period uh, and as mass politics begins to encroach upon um, this kind of civic space, the indigenous Algerian veterans become much more outspoken on their own behalf. They're appearing themselves in meetings. They're writing letters to to political newspapers and to veterans newspapers. And eventually they're forming their own organisations. And in these organisations, they are deliberately pointing out the contradictions at the heart of the the rhetoric of um, supposedly cross-community veterans associations. So they're saying it is incompatible for a veterans association in Algeria to demand full equality of treatment um, with uh, metropolitan veterans and yet not demand full political equality for Algerian veterans. Uh, so this becomes a huge issue for not just for the veterans associations, but actually for the colonial state. Uh, and it ends with the intervention of what I call the colonial military complex. There is a meeting in 1935 of all these uh, quite important senior military and civil figures, and they decide actually to just take over directly uh, the catering for Algerian uh, indigenous Algerian veterans in a semi-militarized, semi-private organization called the Amitiés Africaines. Uh, and the Amitiés Africaines will set up um, soldiers' homes or Dar al Askri uh, around Algeria and subsequently Tunisia, Morocco and, and in metropolitan France, where they can exercise much tighter discipline and control over the Algerian um, veterans themselves and thus stymie their efforts to use their symbolic capital uh, to advance the political cause of of citizenship or equality. We talked earlier, Donal, about the way that the materials that you consulted at Vincennes, the pension um, petitions, um, these petitions of, you know, coming from Mm -hmm. widows and on behalf of orphans to, you know, laying claim to recognition and support on the basis of their sacrifices um, in the First World War. And so we, we talked about how that sort of gives us some insight into parts of Algerian society that we might not always or often get uh, learn enough about, uh, given the archival constraints. In this ch- last chapter, chapter six, focusing on these groups and these petitions also allows you to kind of think about the relationship between the state and these individuals. So, you know, if you're talking about these groups mm-hmm. of people, different constituencies representing different you know, settlers, indigenous Algerians, veterans, that this is a place in the book where you're able to talk about these individuals. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I, I find this perhaps the most interesting chapter to research. And I think it, it is my favorite chapter in the book mm-hmm. uh, because it, it really gives us an insight in, into a world that is quite often absent um, from our understanding of Algerian history in this period. What I thought was, was quite interesting was the extent to which it exposed how limited the state's dominion was in some ways. And this is something that, that, that scholars like uh, Arthur Asarath and, and James McDougall have been saying about this period for a long time, that actually quite a lot of Algerian society exists outside of the dominion of the, of the colonial state, occasionally overlapping with it. In the case of, of these veterans, you know, these are... These are men who have served in the French army. So they obviously have some form of papers. They have passed through the training schools to go into the army. They have received their pay from the army so that they do have a substantial paper record. But even for them, it's quite challenging for the state to identify them and classify them. And then when it comes to women and, and children, they seem to exist largely outside of the realm of the colonial state altogether. Quite often the state has no record who these people are, and the transliteration of Arabic names proves extremely problematic for the state. Uh, And this often gives some form of opportunity uh, to the Algerians. So we have cases that I I talk about where the Algerian uh, claimants are able to, you know, there was one case where a claimant is able to claim uh, a pension in the name of somebody else uh, that is worth more than his own pension uh, because the state as such confusion around the transliteration of Arabic names. In another case, a widow is no longer entitled to her pension because she has remarried. But because that remarriage has taken place, 
in an um, Islamic court uh, and the documentation is kind of ambiguous. The state doesn't take her, her pension away from her. There's a gap quite often between uh, what colonial administrators um, believe the law says, what the law actually says, and what Algerian claimants believe the law should say. Uh, and I think those spaces are quite interesting to explore the dynamics um, between um, Algerian subjects uh, and the colonial state. So where legibility, eligibility, and morality um, all kind of coincide and clash uh, in spaces that, that, that are quite often unseen uh, and unrecorded, uh, but perhaps reflect better the reality of how most Algerians living in, at least in rural Algeria, interacted with the colonial state in this period. So, Donal, you know, the book is uh, entitled, at least, you know, defined by these parameters, end of First World War, beginning of Second World War, and you, we talked earlier about the kind of teleological thing where all roads lead to the war of independence. Um, and it's hard to sort of think about uh, Algerian history, especially, well, not even just in the 20th century, in the 19th and 20th centuries, as kind of leading to that, uh, to the war of independence and to independence. And so I was, you know, as I was reading the book, learning about alternatives, learning about things that I hadn't learned about because I've read so much about the war and its legacies and, and the memory of the war. So you stop, the book stops, and then you pick up again this thread about the commemoration and the centenary. And I wonder like, what happens in between there, how much that is there for you or was there for you mm -hmm. as you were kind of uh, working on this project that you're kind of resisting that teleological impulse or movement in your own field, but it's there. And there, I'm sure there are, you know, questions that you get about how does all of mm -hmm. this that you're covering up to 1939 help us to understand the war of independence better there. It's the cheap question that I'm going to ask. <laughs> Thank you. And it's definitely not the first time I've gotten it, but I do think it is an interesting and important question. And I think that there are, there are two points, one a broad point and one, one much more specific. So the first point is that you know, there there was um, a kind of a school of of historiography during the colonial period and just after the colonial period that focused on these missed opportunities and, and talked a lot about the first world um, the interwar period and post world war first world war reforms as missed opportunities. But I think that the type of research that many of us scholars working on the interwar period are doing now shows that there were no missed opportunities. While all of the uh, activists that I that I am talking about believed that alternative futures were possible, these futures were not possible. Um, the colonial state was incapable and refused to contemplate these these futures. So I think that is really important to understand about the interwar period. It's not a history of missed opportunities as such, but rather it's kind of a genealogy of why um, why nationalism becomes the only option really in Algeria. Why how the colonial state proves itself unwilling and incapable of reform and not because it misses opportunities but rather because that is the very heart of the colonial state is incapable of, of changing incapable of tolerating an erosion of the boundary between subject uh, and citizen that, that underpins the whole colonial project then in terms of the specific um, question of you know what are the legacies institutional legacies we see from this period into the war of independence I'm very much interested in, in the question, again, of veteran history. And we see direct continuation of, of the types of uh, treatment of veterans um, through the War of Independence and indeed into, into the post-independence period. The organisation that, that I just referenced a few minutes ago, the uh, Amitiés Africaines, which was set up at the end of the 1930s to kind of control these rest of in, uh, Algerian veterans, uh, goes from strength to strength, you know, in the, the post-World War II period, and it actually becomes a key pillar in the kind of campaign to win hearts and minds uh, during the, the Algerian war. So they develop a huge network of these soldiers' homes that serve um, to try and rally uh, Algerian veterans to the cause of France um, during the War of Independence. They actually continue to operate uh, post-independence, providing veteran services and uh, for providing um, pensions to veterans of two world wars and actually quite surprisingly to some Harki, to some Algerians who had fought uh, in, in the Algerian war on the French side. So within Algeria, they're providing services to Harki, which, which was quite shocking when I learned that. Quite interestingly, you know, one of the pillars of the post-independence Algerian state 
is the um, the treatment of the Mujahideen, the, the veterans of the War of Independence. Uh, they're key client base that received lots of um, economic and social and um, political privileges in Algeria. And fascinatingly, in, in my view, much of the type of um, the models of provision, the models of privilege that uh, are developed around the Mujahideen in post-independence Algeria have their origins in exactly the type of provision that I'm talking about uh, in, in post-World War One Algeria. So there is a kind of interesting continuity in the treatment of veterans uh, throughout the 20th century in both colonial and post-independence Algeria. It really struck me the moment in the conclusion of the book where you talk about how nationalists and those on the extreme right, I mean, today, the today of 2014, but I'm sure this hasn't ended, you know, are are playing out some of the same roles in terms of how they are invoking and, you know, rejecting certain ideas about the First World War, that that's, we're very familiar with the idea that the War of Independence continues to be played out in the relationship between France and Algeria in a contemporary context, I was less aware of how the First World War can be echoing in that way, and that it's now echoing through the War of Independence um, mm-hmm. and its legacies. And I think it's important there to, to note that it, it's not just you know the the nationalists in Algeria and the the, the Front National in in France, but it's also both governments. You know, all these political movements are tailoring a certain vision of what. First World War was uh, in Algeria in in the period of the centenary uh, with their political interests uh, at heart. So, you know, the, the discourse that, that the Algerian government um, develops about those who fought in the First World War from Algeria um, may have been kind of forced to fight in the war, but they were fighting to secure France's freedom, just like those who fought in, in the War of Independence in Algeria were fighting to secure Algeria's freedom. That might be appealing to some people, that is just as political a discourse around the First World War as the Front National's rejection of the FLN's participation, um, the Algerian army's participation in the, the parade of the Champs Elysees was. Or just as political as François Hollande's idea that this is a shared history for everybody. Um, all of these kinds of kinds of ideas are, are rooted in political discourses that, in my view, are not actually interested in exploring complexity. Uh, of, of Algeria's history in the First World War. Uh, you know, we didn't see any commission, for example, uh, of um, texts um, in Algeria or indeed in France about Algeria's history of the First World War. The, the masses of money that, that came out during the centenary were not primarily directed towards, towards that type of study. Um, so I think it was very clear that those discussions were governed much more by political imperatives, and um, just like they were in the interwar period. One more question, Donal. Mm-hmm. What part of the entangled Franco-Algerian space are you looking at now, or have you moved in another direction? What's What are you working on now? So I, I've got a few various projects on the go, but I, I'll just kind of restrict myself to talking about uh, two of them. In a kind of continuation from, from the research I did for this book, I'm planning to put in a um, grant application for, for a, a big European grant on a global history of colonial veterancy. So that's looking at the history of veterancy in its broadest sense across imperial and temporal boundaries. Um, so it's kind of part of an effort to decolonize veteran studies by um, shifting its center away from the global north uh, and trying to encompass the stories of, of veterancy uh, outside of those zones from the beginning of the colonial um, period uh, right up until decolonization. And then this, the second project that I'm, I'm working on is, is to do with my return to Ireland. Uh, so I've been doing kind of uh, various projects that try to understand both Ireland and Algeria in a kind of a comparative um, colonial space. Uh, so I, I've just completed um, a chapter for a book on the Global Irish Revolution, which looks at the way Algerian revolutionaries throughout the, 19th, the 20th century uh, interpreted the case of Ireland's struggle and then mobilized it um, to support their own cause. Uh, so um, I, I looked at a, a fascinating document uh, in Arabic from from 1923 by um, an Algerian intellectual, Tufik al-Mahdani, and how he interpreted what he calls Ireland's struggle. And then I follow that through to the period of the War of Independence. And then I'm also looking at um, a, a really fascinating kind of local history case uh, here in Cork, 
uh, where a group of Irish migrants in the post-Irish famine period uh, actually travelled to eastern Algeria and tried to settle the land there into what was a kind of a catastrophic settlement scheme that was abandoned. But I think tells us some really interesting things about where different colonised people sit in the hierarchy of colonialism and how the European geographical imaginary in the late 19th century blends together immigration and colonialism. Donal, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for writing the book. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun.